0: On some of the ACB community calls and a couple of other things, I was just enthralled. I I love storytellers and just you know hearing about you know some of the challenges that our community members you know had to face and overcome um, in the past is just always
1: intriguing to me. So thanks for joining us, Peggy. I'll go ahead and turn it over to you. Well, thanks for asking me. I appreciate it. And every time I get a um, Requests like this. It's always kind of fun to learn a little bit about the state history generally. And I was surprised to learn that Oregon was admitted as a state for white people. Ask ACB. And that would mean eight. that no colored people were supposed to be citizens of the state. You couldn't move in with slaves or domestics or whatever you wanted to call them that were colored either. Um, So I I wondered, what did they do about the Indians? (laughs) And in my quest to find out about what they did about the Indians, I cannot find an 1880 census for Indians. That's what they called them back then. Um, Um, which I found unusual because other states had separate um, census data for the tribes. And uh, I was kind of surprised to find that out. But I do have one blind Indian, and we'll talk about him in a little while. Um, I wanted to just, for some of you who do not know uh, much about me, I write... As the blind history lady it was a title giving to given to me as a joke many many years ago because i would sort of you know provide more data than sometimes people wanted to know about something in the past or correct somebody and uh, somebody says well you're just the blind history lady and when i decided to really make Uh, this a project and not just something I do on the side. I needed a name for myself and that popped into my head and, well, heck, it kind of fits. I did not like history in school. I have always liked to research stuff and find out what people really did, where they came from. Um, So, that. That was something that's always been a part of me. But the actual history part, because I didn't find relevancy in what I was learning in school. I didn't know why Benjamin Franklin was supposed to be important to me and never uh, took into history. Didn't like memorizing all them dates. Now I can't memorize all them dates if I don't have a cheat sheet. Um, But I decided that... um, I would make this a project about uh, actually about seven years ago now. I think uh, I have been a genealogist for over 20 years now and started out that you know weekend genealogist over the winter. I was going to do something to keep me busy genealogy is more addicting than chocolate or Pepsi or anything like that, I am here to tell you. Um, So I started to research my family history and took a lot of classes, did volunteering. Uh, Through volunteering, I learned a lot about uh, people's techniques for researching, finding those pieces of data that nobody else can find. If you go to online and do a lot of research, that's great, but that's not where the meat of the story is, especially for us as blind people. In my putting together this Blind History Lady project, originally was to tell the stories because I grew up in the blind community in North Dakota. My mother was blind. She went to the School for the Blind in Bathgate. And I knew the blind rug weavers, the blind door-to-door salesmen, and so on, uh, kind of embarrassed by them because how come they didn't get a real job, you know, like a teacher or a lawyer or whatever, not realizing that these were the trailblazers in North Dakota that made it possible for the lawyers and the, the teachers in the public schools and the blind people who had their own businesses and so on. So, That was an important thing for me to get those stories out because we as blind people do not know our own history. And if we don't know our own history, we're destined to make a lot of mistakes that were resolved in the past. That old saying about if you don't know the history, you're destined to repeat it. I don't know that we'll necessarily repeat it, but we'll definitely make a lot of mistakes that we could have easily avoided. And now when getting into this much deeper, I am realizing how fast our history is going away. It is not part of the important things that states are saving. The material that tells our stories is going away. What's being saved are the annual reports of the commissions or the agencies for the blind, the homes for the blind, the um, the schools for the blind, but not the stories of the accomplishments. If you read many of the uh, biennial reports of the schools for the blind or some of the agencies, when they honor people at the end of their reports, usually they're sighted people. Usually they're people who have made um, large donations. They don't talk about the blind people that they have helped and how 20 years later, they're owning their own business somewhere. So I felt it was really important to tell these stories. I have published up on Smashwords, which is a self-publishing site. And that's all one word, Smashwords. Just take smash and words and smash it together. And there you got Smashwords. If you put in Blind History Lady or Peggy Chong, you can see many of the books that I have put up there. If you were going to pull them, please pull them in a format that is easily read by our screen readers. There's a bunch of the formats up there. However, pull the text or the word formats, and then you shouldn't have any accessibility issues with the formats. Um, My books talk about uh, a blind boat, boat builder whose boats have been raced in many of the sailing races around the country. The America's Cup, of course, he, um, I think the first 25 years, his boats won 23 of those 25 years. Um, about blind professors, scientists um, who have contributed greatly uh, to our country. And I find these people fascinating because I read about people from the 1800s to the early 1900s, blind people who have not had always the luxury of going to a school for the blind, who didn't have opportunities if they went blind in their 20s, 30s, or 40s to attend any sort of a rehabilitation center at all. There was no public support in government aid. There was charitable aid, and sometimes there was aid from a county or a city. Many blind people chose not to do that. And the reason they chose not to do that was because if you had to go to the county or the city, and ask them for money. And you probably had to do this several times each year because you would be given money for a month or money for a quarter. But the cities and counties' budgets back in the 1800s, 1900s, early 1900s were not as dependable with a tax base as they are today. So they only had a certain amount of discretionary money to give out and chose to give it out in parcels so if you went you had to go to the city council hi i need some money i have to support three little kids and i don't have a job and they'd ask you well what you've been trying to do and then it was published in the paper so your family went to church on sunday and somebody would say i see your sister or your brother or your son had to go to the city to get money uh, how come you're not supporting your blind relatives? So there was a lot of shame involved in that, which meant that some people, uh, in order to save their families' embarrassment, or maybe in some cases because their families said, if you're going to have to ask for charity, you've got to go somewhere else because I'm not, you know, I don't want to be embarrassed. So they would have to leave their families. Uh, to do so, which in some cases didn't always mean that they got the money because the counties would say, you know, you're really from such and so a county. If you want money, you got to go back there. They did that in Iowa a lot. (laughs) Um, So these these people chose not to get on any kind of public assistance if they could avoid it. Uh, The charities, the churches uh, came with sometimes a lot of extra baggage. The joke is, you know, nowadays, if you're going to the mission for dinner, you got to sit through the sermon. It, you know, that's mild compared to what some of them had to do. Uh, some of them had to proselytize. They had to go on um, missions around and carry their, you know, carry their own message, which meant they were used as sort of the blind poster child for Whatever the church was promoting, um, especially during the temperance movement, so again there was a lot of extra baggage, and you didn't get much when you came out of working that kind of a, a an option. So uh, you try. I think there was a a need to try harder. If you didn't get a charity donation, you didn't have money to live off of. Your other option was a poor farm. And in many cases during uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, poor farms were probably more dangerous than going into prison. And I have found articles in newspapers in almost all parts of the country where a blind person comes into town and immediately goes to the police station for shelter for the night or commits a small crime to get into jail. Uh, for a period of time, if the weather is really cold. So, when I go through the Oregon uh, information, constantly researching, and I never try to say the first blind person to, the first blind person in a state to do this, because sure, shooting in a month or two, I'll find an earlier person. So, I am constantly revisiting um, my people that I'm researching. I call them my blind ancestors. So I'm going to tell some of the things that, um, oh, I want to also just tell you quickly, too. I do a monthly newsletter, uh, an email newsletter. I send it out around the first of the month. It's about a blind person that I am researching at the time and have found a little bit about them. I try to send out no more than two emails a month. So if you want to be on my email list, shoot me an email to theblindhistorylady. That's all one word, theblindhistorylady at gmail.com, and I will be glad to add you to my list. Um, And I've actually talked about a couple of Oregonians um, in the past. One of the things that I found kind of funny is that. it, Oregon seemed to be a, sort of a either a jumping-off place for some people, a place to start or a place to end, and there didn't seem to be any pattern to it, which I thought was kind of interesting. But one of the earliest things that I found out about Oregon and blind folks was in 1897. There was an organization called the Oregon National College for the Blind Association and they held their first annual meeting in 1897. I don't know that they held any others after that. Uh, It kind of blew away. It came out of the meeting in 1895 of the American Blind People's Higher Education and General Improvement Association that was formed in St. Louis, Missouri in 1895. And these were mostly graduates of schools for the blind, and that's how uh, a couple of the Oregonians went in 1895 to Missouri uh, to attend that first meeting and brought that message back. There were also some school for the blind officials involved in that, but it was primarily a blind people's movement to ensure that states provided money for blind folks to go to college, that They might be provided some reader money. Um, And the general improvement part has some to do with uh, not so much the um, pension laws or anything like that, but more of the getting enough money from someplace to make a step ahead, to start, get the tools to start your own business or what have you. Um, Not necessarily a rehabilitation. A push primarily education so you're talking about you know getting enough education getting the tools to work in something uh before you have to get out there in the public anyway so they came And met in Oregon and drew a lot of attention from some of the other states around Washington State, California, and so on. The organization never really got off the ground. I have not found a lot of complete lists to know how many of the Oregonians actually were a part of the American Blind People's Higher Education Group. Uh, That group later became the AAWB, by the way. Um, The... Other thing that I found that was kind of interesting uh, about the state is that women had a little more going for themselves, blind women, had a little more going for themselves than other states did. And what I mean by that is women, blind women, were usually not the first ones that were selected to receive college money. In fact, in some states, it it took decades, even after the the money was available, and usually you had to go to the state legislat- legislature to get the money. Such was the case in Oregon as well. Women weren't considered that because they weren't gonna they weren't gonna do anything. They were gonna go get married, have babies, or they were gonna live in. You know the back of their brother's house, taking care of kids and cooking, or something like that. They weren't going to do anything; they weren't going to have a career, so there was no reason to waste the state's money on women. However, Oregon um, in the 19 teens actually paid for two year college programs for blind women to go and get their degrees. Uh, one of them was Berna Hate, and H A. I-G-H-T. And she was a graduate of the Oregon School for the Blind. She lived from 1885 to 1955, uh, graduated from the School for the Blind and did go to college, got her degree. She wanted to be a teacher in the public school. That was just not possible uh, for her in Oregon. There were not there were not any teachers that I can find yet who were blind that taught in public schools. She taught music um, for for decades. She had come from California, um, had gone to the Berkeley School in California, and then her family moved to Oregon. She was the very first teacher in the 1920s, a blind teacher, to be certified by the state of oregon as a teacher so she could have she had the credentials to teach in public school that did not happen now she was active in her community in ashland um she was a member of many of the women's clubs there she played piano for their entertainment she participated in put together programs for her women's travel club. They didn't do a lot of traveling. They just talked about a lot of traveling. Um, but taught piano, taught music to many of the folks in town. In 1955, she was crossing the street at the corner in the crosswalk and was hit by a young teenager. He was 16 at the time, and his, the brakes went out on his car um and he slid through the intersection and hit her and she passed away shortly after that time one of the most prominent blind people that uh, I think you might all agree would be Benjamin Franklin Irving from Oregon and f- some of you might remember on the Oregon campus there was the Irving um, dorm room the building and that was named after him he made a donation uh, primarily his donation is what built that um that building now he was someone who actually um, grew up as a sighted person he was born uh, in July of 1857 in Lebanon Oregon uh that you know your average normal childhood he was active in church and sang in the choir and all that good stuff. In about the age of 13, he fell in love with the newspaper business. And he became a little reporter for the local uh, Albany, Oregon weekly paper. Um, he did some of the small jobs around the newspaper. So he wasn't just being the reporter. Um He had uh, a a good opinion of himself. You know, here's this kid. He's 21 years old, and he's running for Albany School Board, all that good stuff. He gets into politics. We'll get into a little bit of that later on. Um, But he uh, moves to the Corvallis area. And in the Corvallis Gazette, dated uh, February 28, 1880, talk about secret voting, I'll tell you. In the, the newspaper at that time, they would list all of the people that were going to be voting, and they listed their parties and who they were voting for. Um, I That is the first time I've ever seen that in in any kind of a newspaper. He was a Republican at that time. His dad was a Republican and so on. Uh, that becomes uh, important later on. Um, he went to... Uh, Willamette University. Uh, he graduated there with two degrees. He um, met a lot of people. Oregon was small at that time, so he met a lot of people that would become very important later on in a variety of areas. Now, at the school, he was on the boxing team. And it was while he was on the boxing team, he got hit in the head. Um, quite severely. And this started him to slowly begin to lose his vision. Um, he went back to Corvallis after graduating from college and went back to farming. He was a dairy farmer. He didn't think that he wasn't confident enough to go back to the newspaper, something that he really loved to do. Now, Corvallis was a, a, a good sized town with about 1100 people, uh, at about that time. And it was growing. It had a lot of, um, opportunities and challenges. He was a great speaker and people took advantage of that and asked him to speak at, um, graduation ceremonies, many of the political meetings. Um, He spoke at libraries and, uh, well, not libraries, but he spoke at the community centers when they were studying things because there wasn't a lot of libraries and that kind of thing. And so they had these community meetings. And he would talk on these topics because he was a well-read person. He had been to college, you know. uh, He was working for the railroad company farming doesn't pay a lot so he was also working uh for the west side railway company in corvallis and he would meet the trains and tell people where they were supposed to go and he would um when the freight would come off he would say okay this goes to this wagon and goes down to john smith's store that kind of thing um, he was really good at that he got to meet a lot of the people in town uh he ran for mayor in about 1903 and one of the things that he did was uh, he was instrumental in changing the sewer system and getting the water pump system the gravity pump system involved those were the things that he thought were really great he was able to run for mayor partly because he had purchased the Corvallis times in 1893 and he took over the newspaper. He was the editor. Uh, he would write all of these opinions, editorials that he was signed. He didn't ghostwrite. Uh, talking about what he thought was the right way to handle the city problems. And when he was traveling to all these meetings with, um, newspaper people because he attended conventions uh, in California and Washington State and Idaho and such. Uh, he would travel with other newspaper men. He would talk to them and developed a very good memory. Um, he would travel with all these politicians. He was active in the Democratic Party. Uh, he was also active in what I think was called the Union Party. It didn't last very long, but the Union Party was a form of it was kind of a part of the republican party but there were democrats involved or non-aligned people and it was to break up the republican hold that it had on on the county at the time very stormy time in the corvallis history because people didn't uh they fought politically all over the place now he didn't learn braille uh, at this time all this time from 1880 to um About 1895, he had very little vision and still, you know, back then you didn't have to worry about cars, but he still walked to and from everywhere. There's no indication that he used a cane. He didn't learn Braille, but what he did learn was to type, and he typed really well. And when we think of editors writing copy and changing what they wrote, usually we think of somebody taking pen or pencil and scratching this out, rewriting it, or what have you. What he did was he would type it all out. And when he would make a mistake or when he would change his thought or when he would want to use different words, he'd say, scratch that. He'd type it all out, scratch that, and add this phrase instead. Or later on, he would put at the bottom of the page, between paragraph two and three, insert this paragraph and he would type it all out. So he did his editing, if you will, on the typewriter. Doesn't sound like the most efficient way in the world to do that, but it worked for him and he continued to do this just about all of, all of his life. So, okay. So he's in Corvallis. He has the Corvallis paper, um, he gets married. He has a kid and he, uh, is president of a lot of these um, clubs in town. He's got his hand in everything. Um, in 1905, he was appointed by the governor of the state to the Water Commission. A lot of what he was doing with the, uh, as mayor getting the new water systems it was new to the um, city of corvallis but it was new to oregon as well uh, he was concerned about irrigation and so on so he becomes part of the water commission and he is a part of that for a long time he has a lot of opinions about that and um keeps researching it, keeps talking to people about it, even though he's no longer farming, he's no longer um, as mayor, no longer working on these things, but it became a big issue for him, and he followed it almost to his death. In 1908, uh, he leaves Corvallis, and he takes a job as editor uh, on the staff of the Oregon Journal in Portland, and he still owned the Corvallis paper, um, but the family moved to to Portland uh, again, he gets really involved in the Democratic Party there. Uh, he is asked to run for state office. Um, he um, works for the paper almost to his death. Actually, in nineteen about nineteen thirty seven, I believe he retires from the paper, and still still is actively writing and so on. Now, he had, by the time um, his kids were in their teens, they acted as his readers. They act- um, His daughter especially went to work for the um, Oregon, Oregon Journal, um, became a part of the team, if you will. But he had staff in the house um, that, took care of the housework and so on. His wife then, after the kids were pretty much grown, she's acting as his reader um, to going with him on traveling. Now, he sometimes went with um, others, like I said, mostly with other people from the paper because this was his way of gathering information. Um, 1940, the um, his house catches on fire. Now, he's been in bad health. One of the reasons he retired in 1937 was that he his health was not very good. I mean, he's, you know, he's not a spring chicken anymore either. And so, the house catches on fire. They pull him out of the fire. He recovers from all of that, and then he passes away on May 1st of 1940. But he left quite a legacy, especially with the Oregon Journal. Um, There's a lot of things that are written about him on many of the sites um, for um, anything regarding to newspapers in Oregon. You'll find B.F. Irving all over the place. And one of the things I learned is there's a lot of Benjamin Irvings in Oregon. Why? I don't know, but there are. Okay, I told you that I was going to tell you about uh, Blind Jim. Blind Jim was an Indian chief who lived from maybe about 1821 till at least after 1903. And we know about Blind Jim because of diaries that were left uh, behind by the let me get to that file because I know I'm going to make a mistake. OK, There we go. There were a lot of the, the settlers who came in and left diaries um, and behind, and they mentioned this blind, blind Jim, as he was known. What is his real name? We don't know. I cannot find any census data about the american indians that were around there at the time even as far ahead as 1900 and this is all around the uh columbia river uh he was chief of the columbia river renegades now who gave him the name of blind jim probably white settlers He was the blind Indian who came to the ranchers who had befriended the Indians, who had shared with the Indians, who didn't chase them off with rifles when the Indians came on their land, and said to them, he learned to speak English um, and did very well at speaking English. Um, He said to them that if they were friends of the Indians, that their homes would not be burned to the ground and their cattle wouldn't be um, killed, and made an impression on a lot of them. In 1878, along the whole Columbia River area, the Indian population had become very upset with the white man because there had been these... uh, treaties that had been signed, basically taking all the land from the Indians. They were used to going from high ground to low ground, following the river, fishing for salmon, um, moving from place to place, and now they couldn't do that. Uh, They were used to spearfishing for salmon, and now they were told they couldn't do that. They were used to hunting elk, and now they couldn't do that. They couldn't go and gather the material for their their teepees because, nope, that's on private land. And uh, I'm not going to go into the culture of the American Indians, but I don't believe they understood at the time exactly what the white man was trying to tell them. So in 1878, all these chiefs from... I'll probably butcher the name of this tribe too, but it's the, I'll spell it, U-M-A-T-I-L-L-A, Umatala tribes, they met, and the chiefs were really angry. Now, Blind Jim was the only one who wanted to make peace with the white men. Yes, he believed that they were being cheated, but he didn't believe that going around and burning down uh, the properties was going to be the answer. So that's when I said that he went around and he said, yours will be spared. And he, he kept his word to the people who had befriended, the white people who had befriended his tribe. He was known for eating meat, that he would take the whole big hunk of meat and he would bite into it and slice off with a knife right in front of his face. And people marveled at how the blind Indian never cut his face, never cut his nose, never cut his fingers, uh, was very handy with his knife. <clears throat> Umatilla. Pardon? you Matilla Okay. <laughs> I am not that good at pronouncing a lot of these cool names. So, you know, <laughs> well, if you want a lesson later, I'm happy to help. <laughs> I might need it. Uh, now, the, in, the um, Native Americans at the time, they had dogs and pets. And he had a dog. It was his, do- his guard dog that guarded his teepee. It was not his do- guide dog like some people um, uh, suggested. He would travel many times with his braves when he was going on business, but he also traveled with women from his tribe. Um, you see lots of notes about um, blind Jim and his squaw. Uh, But when he was going into the um, community to Hebron, he would bring braves with him because he was on business. Uh, Sometimes he would go into town because one of the uh, People from his tribe had been arrested for something. He would go into the courthouse. He would negotiate with the attorneys. He would talk to the judges to ensure that his tribe tribal members received fair treatment, because that didn't always happen, as you probably will uh, know. Um, so he was known to do that. And he would talk to them you know, really kind of, oh, you know, we'll take care of it on the reservation. I'm so sorry. He knew how he had to talk to the white man in order to get what he wanted, to get his braves out of jail and so on. His tribe also was active all year round. They would have their hunting and fishing season, and they would sell off their abundance of whatever they had caught, whatever they had um, raised, whatever they had picked and go into town and sell it. Uh, after a few years of trading with the white men, Blind Jim only allowed his tribe to receive gold and silver. None of that paper stuff, no promise of credit at the store, no trinkets. He wanted the money. He knew, he knew what what was going on so it was gold or silver or nothing if you were trading with him and their tribe also raised a lot of horses and their uh, his sons were uh, his son was called Buffalo Bill and I can't find him anywhere either but his son Buffalo Bill would bring in all these horses uh, once or twice a year especially into Hebron and sell off his horses. Now, if someone came up to him and was trying to get him to lower his prices or tell him that his horses weren't any good, he knew his animals. He would pretend he couldn't speak English, but he spoke English very well. Um, When they were out in the winter months, they would scavenge and they would pick up all of the things that uh, the settlers or those traveling through Oregon left behind, things that meant something to the white man, not anything to the to his tribe. Uh, they would find all of the sheep that had been sheared and partly butchered, sometimes not even that. And they would shear them all the way, take every piece of wool off of the animals. And then in the spring, the tribe would come in to... Uh, the communities and negotiate for what they were bringing back and sell these goods back to the white men, sell the wool back. And the wool was, that was a good commodity at the time. So in one spring, his, his folks went out of town with over $300 in gold and silver. Again, um, in Hepburn, he was well-known. You can try but he ain't going to give you any leeway. He wants the gold and silver in his hand. He's the he's the really nice Indian. They called him. He was a really nice Indian. He was a respectful Indian. He understood about God. Now, whether he did or not, but he could mimic it, what he needed to back to um, uh, the white men. You know, Native Americans have uh, their spiritual beliefs. But he knew that to get somewhere with these white people, you had to talk about the Christian Bible as well. Uh, So, really a very, very smart, uh, very smart man. And sadly, there's just very little on this person. I have, uh, a few years ago, I went to the um, uh, museum in Hebron, And asked them what they had. They gave me a couple of little bits, but not a lot. Um, The history of the non-white population in Oregon has has not been saved. Um, Let me tell you about another person who didn't come from Oregon, actually came from Montana. And that's where I first found out about him, was Henry Blaine Hurst and he he was a kid when he went blind uh, in Montana. He was born in 1875, and he lived to 1955. Henry went to the School for the Blind in Montana, which was far, far lower than the Oregon School for the Blind. I have not a lot of data about the Oregon School for the Blind, but know that they had a a far better established curriculum for academics in 1880 montana didn't have a school for the blind until 1890 and when they did have the, get their school for the blind they they had a building but that was about as much as there was so these kids the deaf and blind kids who went to the school They built the barns, they built the fences, they tended the the cattle, uh, they raised the chickens, they milked the cows, they grew the um, gardens, they did the cooking, they built the furniture. Uh, So here he is, Henry has learned all these skills, carpenter skills, and he had to because if they wanted heat, they had to chop the wood. Um, There wasn't a lot of staff All they had was the kids' labor. And the interesting thing is in Montana, the School for the Blind and Deaf put out their annual reports and talked about the hardships and how they needed, especially in the school building. The school building got built, but no heat. Uh, So they needed to have heat in the building. It took them uh, two years at least to get heat in the building. So you're talking about kids out in Montana. In a building where there's no heat. So the school and the dorms and the cooking and all that were basically in two rooms of the school so that they could keep it warm enough so nobody would freeze to death. Uh, That's the kind of conditions he learned in. Now, he wanted to be a musician or a music teacher. Uh, He learned a little bit of piano tuning at the school for the blind in Montana. It didn't do so great he left Montana and traveled to several states, South Dakota being one of them. And he got jobs in theaters to play for the silent movies or to play before the silent movies. Um, he played for the entertainment. Now when these theaters were, um, they would have to have a lot of things in the theater all the time in order for them to make money. And one of the things that kept him employed as a pianist was that he could fix anything. So the show is over, and the manager says, There's chairs in the front row that need to be repl- repaired. Uh, we've got uh, a railing that came off in the stairwell. He did all that stuff. He even learned to do electrical work as the theaters started to have electricity put in them he got an opportunity to buy his first movie theater or theater not a movie theater yet he bought his first theater even though they were running the silent silent movies um they weren't called movie theaters because the movies were just a few and they would come you know a 10-minute movie might come in three or four reels and you got to change in it. it's a lot of than the next stuff so they would show the movie and then they would have the kids choir sing or they would have somebody reading poetry or whatever so he buys his first theater and he gets it up and running and he buys another and he buys another and about 1922 he moves to ashland oregon and he buys the vining theater um this now was the biggest Theater in Ashland. It was smaller than the theaters he'd left behind in South Dakota, but this was a different type of community. This was a prestige theater. It was new, it was modern, it had all this electricity and chandeliers and the big pipe organ and all this good stuff. So he becomes the manager of the theater. He uh, gets into a cartel with other theaters. He marries a couple times. His first wife, uh she married him got all the money she needed from him and took off um then he married later on again a a lady who had been working for him in the theater and uh, the two of them actually had a happily ever after uh, type thing but his theater uh now we're having the bigger the talking movies he transitioned uh the vining from Um, silent movies to talkies he had um, operettas in the theater this was the theater you went to when you dressed up at night this wasn't like some of the other theaters where you paid 25 cents to get in for the afternoon for entertainment and this was you know the farmers all came into town this was class and he had um a really good reputation for his theater he passed away in 1947, and uh, the theater was being operated by his niece and nephew at the time and st- still, st- still ran for several more years. I believe it was torn down uh, about maybe 10 years or so after his death. Now, um, we are kind of running out of time, so let me just kind of go quickly through a couple of other people that I thought were fascinating. Fascinating for me, anyway. Uh, Theodore Hansen. Uh, He was a publisher, and he was a transportation company owner. He was born in 1875 in Norway. He came over to the United States to make it big when he was about 16, Uh, went to uh, Washington State, did really well as a painter, and somewhere around 1912 or so lost his vision. How, we don't know. Uh, He was married. He had two children found nothing for him in Washington State, moves to uh, moves to Oregon, and he starts a small publishing house. He prints magazines uh, for Spanish-American War veterans. Uh, that was once a month. He had three other magazines that he was publishing. Uh, a lot of this he did by um, talking to his staff, hiring staff to do it. Uh, his wife helped out some. But he was the one that went and got all of the material. He's the one who this is a primarily Norwegian speaking person printing in English. That was his biggest hassle, not the blindness. Uh, so for print, for him to write the articles was difficult because it wasn't his native tongue. But he got the material. He went out and he got the support from the um veterans of foreign wars, all of the American legions. He got them to support his papers getting them to purchase subscriptions and so on. Uh, He did fairly well. One of the problems he had, though, as a publisher, was not being able to get his supplies from point A to point B or to get his papers, his magazines in a timely fashion from his publishing house out to wherever. So he purchased some trucks. And when they weren't in use, he hired them out. and Pretty soon, the transportation company is now his biggest uh, business. Uh, his sons went on to be business owners as well. And one of the, the younger son actually took over the transportation business. Uh, Charles Robinson is a blind another blind guy who got money from the state in the 19 teens, 1920 to go to college. And, uh, there's all these, the first blind golfer ever. Actually, I think he might've been the first blind golfer that I can find anyway. And he did that as a student at the University of Oregon. Glenn Hurlbert was a kid who was, bo- he was born in 1909, died in 1961. He went to the public schools as a very limited vision kid. He didn't read print and actually used readers some. So even though There were not classes for blind kids for another couple decades, yet he was probably the first, one of the earliest blind kids to go to the public schools. Now, he became a musician who had his own radio show. He did commercials. Uh, He wrote commercials. He performed them. He Um, transitioned from the radio into professionally done commercials where he was the one that wrote the scripts, wrote the music uh, for them as well. There was a lot of really cool people. Um, Oregon seemed to be a place where kids went, who lived in Oregon, went to Berkeley a lot for the School for the Blind. Why they didn't go to the School for the Blind in Oregon, I don't know. Um, But they came back Two students who went to the university uh, in Oregon, uh, Glenn Castile, he was a college student and also with Mark Shoesmith, these two blind guys on a lark decided to take a sculpting class. And actually did a whole bunch of busts of people as they were students and kept on doing it while they were students, even after they were no longer taking the class. Mark Shoesmith actually went on to be a sculptor, and his sculptures are – you can still purchase some of them on eBay once in a while – they are actually quite expensive if you do so I wanted to leave a little bit of time and so I'm going to stop right now and say does anybody have any questions
0: hi this is Desiree the one with the umatilla so you'd know yeah Um, (laughs) no questions but I'm a fellow history geek so yay (laughs) and it's, it's been lovely um, and I know we're going to get to some of the uh, School for the Blind history throughout this weekend, because uh, some of our members, um, if you wanted to connect with them to learn more about the um, School for the Blind history, they, they are here. They're, they're going to pre- be presenting some of that this weekend. So
1: Yeah, yeah. I've seen some of, some of the School for the Blind history online and thought, well, you know, I'm not going to cover any of that because it looks like they're covering it really well. <laughs> yep, yep. I see
0: two hands. I see somebody in the audience, and then I see my mom, Teresa. Mm -hmm. Wesley, you may unmute.
2: Yes. uh, I wonder, uh, uh, I guess it's Peggy, but yeah, it's like, where can I get more information on this history? It's like one time I found at the Multnomah County Library a book called "The History of the Blind in Oregon," but the thing was pretty dry reading. And it was like you had to hold a dictionary in one hand, book in the other to understand. it. So it's like I suffered through it, you know. I, I made it through it. Even my mom went for and Said, "But I kept renewing the darn thing." And my mom at one said one point, "You know this? You know one more time? You know just return it." But I think I made it through. But like the history you're doing, it. is there any, is it being published anywhere where I can get to it?
1: I am publishing what I can, when I can, and mostly it is through my email list that, again, if you send me an email, I'll put you on it, uh, theblindhistorylady at gmail.com. Okay. The reason I do this is because it isn't there. I didn't read specifically the book that you're talking about ever, but I can tell you that I have read enough material histories of the blind, and it's a lot of regurgitated state reports, or it's um, <laughs> one, one view of what went on in the blind community. And when I, when I say this, because I have researched Minnesota and Iowa really well from my perspective of looking at our blind ancestors, and I can tell you that what the history says in Minnesota, the published official history of the blind, leaves out some dramatic events uh, that impacted people. Blind people in the communities that made a huge difference in how these people took the next step. Uh, it's, you know, you kind of always given, well, okay, in 1923, Minnesota first had its home teacher for the blind, which allowed people to get out and learn to travel and so on. Yet they were already doing that. Um, th- and the, the contrasts between today and yesterday, for example, We've had two blind US senators, but the last one, uh, um, Thomas Pryor Gore, uh, left the US Senate in the 1930s. Thomas David Shaw from Minnesota was killed by a hit and run driver in 1935. He is my first blind ancestor, by the way. Uh, He's the one that I studied the most. He's the one that I found these papers on and went, who the heck is this blind congressman from Minnesota? So I had to know about him. And um, I've interviewed many of his family, and they swear, and they've got some pretty good evidence on their side that he was killed by the mafia arm of the DFL. Anyway, we've had five U.S. congressmen, but no one since 1940 yet we talk about how especially in the organized blind movements that we're making progress in legislative areas we had more blind people serving in state senate senates and state representative uh, state legislatures in the 1920s and 30s and 40s than we do today why is that i mean we can come up with a lot of reasons and debate that but we're not writing about how those people got to where they were back then and why aren't we getting to where we are we're just looking at the facts and the figures of how much money was spent on this program and that program and that's what's ending up in these books not the lives of us as blind people and i'm hoping that through my presentations even if i you know don't make a mint at it (laughs) which i don't think that's going to happen but maybe it will inspire others to take this small piece uh there's so much research that could be done in one city about the blind people there or about one time period about the blind people in a particular state um I've got several articles started about this and that from this perspective, like the class of 1888 at the Iowa College for the Blind. And what happened to them? Because this was a class that all started school at the same time. They went through the whole curriculum together. They all graduated together. They all came from similar backgrounds. And what happened to them? They, they all went very different ways. Um, so what makes a person A successful blind person. We're not looking at that either. There's so many ways we could be looking at our history and not just through some of those dry books like you were talking about. (laughs) That's a roundabout way of answering your question, Mm -hmm. but you can get my books on Smashwords, and I also have one in print that you can get through Amazon. Um, Peggy Chong, the blind history lady, the book is called Don Mahoney, Television Star. He's about a, a blind Texan who has to keep his blindness a secret while he creates one of the biggest TV, kitty TV shows in Texas and why he had to do that and how he did it.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Peggy. And um, for those who were, were raising your hands, we're sorry. We do need to move on. Um, I do want you to know, uh, Peggy, that our previous um, state president, James Edwards is actually the mayor of Lakeside, Oregon. It's a small community. Um, so that's been kind yeah. of fun watching him do that. So,
1: <laughs> so see, some are head heading towards politics. <laughs> so documented it and get the stories out. If we don't tell our stories, no one will. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So
0: next up, I know Dr. Hobie Wedler's in the room. I heard him come in and out a couple of times. And so, It is time for blind wine tasting or wine tasting with Dr. Hobie. Well, I don't know. I can't look at my form right now to see what I labeled it. (laughs) Um, So, Hobie, you got the floor.
3: Well, Sherry, Carrie, thank you. So is that Carrie talking? Yes, Yes, it
0: it is, Carrie. That's what I assumed.
3: Carrie, thank you so much. I just need to apologize to you all in, in advance. That I do have uh, a bit of laryngitis at the moment. I uh, got a head cold recently that was absolutely nothing, and I feel great. And I went for a five-mile hike today, but apparently it shot my vocal cords. So I apologize for the horse presentation here tonight, but I hope it's good nonetheless. And I guess all... that
0: that ties into the you know Native American history with the horses and the horse flesh that Peggy talked about
3: i think it does and and, <laughs> and peggy i got to hear i got to hear enough of your presentation to know that uh i really enjoy your work and and want to be in touch later i actually as an undergraduate was a was a chemist and an historian so i got a degree in united states history and what as well i would love to uh to chat with you more and get to know you more um in in that context hey carrie how long did you give me tonight
0: like an hour I didn't know for sure um you know how much time you needed
3: that's great an hour is great yeah. we'll use yeah. it yeah yeah good um I first off want to thank, thank uh, publicly the ACV of Oregon very much and you're hear me do this again tomorrow evening for the uh the lovely gifts that y'all have sent sent from uh, Oregon wine country I can't wait to uh to try them they were just received uh yesterday I think and uh Thank you very much. It's a very kind gesture of you, and uh, you know I appreciate the ACB tremendously, and uh, I'm so excited to have been able to meet Carrie earlier this year, and and come into the circle and learn uh, what you all are all about, and uh, I really appreciate the energy. I appreciate all the folks here and and everybody that uh, that brings us all the life. So just to uh, to mention a few things about me. First of all, I was uh, born completely blind, and uh, I had amazing parents. I'll talk a lot about this tomorrow, so I'm not going to bore you with it. But uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up in a chemistry lab somewhere with one foot, and in a winery tasting room with another. And uh, you know, I really do try to straddle the intersection as well as I can between art and science, and between the physical science in which I've earned my PhD, which is chemistry, and the the fine art of wine that we're tasting uh, here tonight. I'm going to be uh, really appreciating and talking about here tonight. Um, I'm excited first to ask you all, how many of you love wine?
0: I'm an ex-wine lover.
3: Wine is wine is where it's at.
0: Pat and um, I are uh, wine lovers, and we belong to Willamette Valley Vineyards as members.
3: You know, Willamette Valley Vineyards is an amazing wine club. Uh, one of my favorites, and uh, they just do good work all around. So I really, I really appreciate the Willamette Valley Vineyards. Uh, they're they're great people, and uh, you guys—that's one of the things I want to talk about—is you guys, Oregon, <laughs> have some of the finest Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, and even Chardonnay that I know. And I'm really impressed really? with the wine that y'all put out. By the way, because of my damn throat issue, I'm drinking some uh, water with a little bit of uh, lemon zest in it and Oregon honey. Uh, you know, I, I thought I had to had to do something authentic. So that I'll be enjoying this uh, nom, mug nom, of nom, Oregon. Nom. What's that?
0: I said, nom, 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 nom.
3: That's it. You know, you know, you
0: know we were going to send you a bottle of wine, but found out you can't ship it if you, you know, unless you're from a company.
3: So can't ship it unless you're from a company, unless you, uh, unless you don't <laughs> tell anybody, you know. And, <laughs> then let yeah, but no, you're right. So thank you so much for for what you did send. Thank you very, very kindly. Uh, very, very much appreciated. So I want to start our evening out. Just thinking about wine as an art form, you know, we, we think about art, and I think a lot of sighted people think about art, and they get stuck in their realm of art as things that we look at, art as painting, art as sculpture, art is visual design, all this stuff. You know, art is so much more than anything we can see. It's the spoken word. It's the play that we listen to. It's the screenplay that we watch with audio description. And by the way, audio description is 100% art art in and of itself. It's sculptures we can feel. It's um, foods that we eat, aromas that we smell when we're walking down a trail on a Saturday morning in the fog. It's also things that we drink, like wine. And I feel like, really, in the past, probably fifty years, in the new world, meaning areas that are non-European or Asian, food and drink have really taken a seat at the table, an honest seat at the table, when it comes to art. But I, I feel a little bit worried that maybe before that, that they weren't necessarily considered as much of an art form. But I feel honored and excited that we're, we're now bringing them in and talking about them as arts and to themselves, whether it be a wine, whether it be a food, whether it be a wine and food paired together, or a whole dinner experience, including the people you're with, what you're eating and what you're drinking. All can be 100% art forms and appreciated equally as such. Um, The old world is interesting Uh, when I look back at antiquity, even in in ancient Greek and Roman uh, philosophy and also real uh, monographs. You know, we see that wine and food were what held cultures together. Uh, My 100 page dissertation uh, to earn my history degree was written in ancient uh, Roman history and basically the wine trade across the great Roman Empire in amphorae which are clay casks that uh that hold wine. And by the way in 2006 I ended up in Bucharest, Romania with family on a vacation and ended up in an old Roman museum where things weren't covered and they actually let me walk down and handle a couple of broken up amphorae uh, that was that was just incredible from around 400 to 600 BC. Uh that was that was an amazing experience. So what I'm saying here is that wine has gone back in history for up to 4,000 years, but mostly in the old world, as being uh, something that people drink to uh, enjoy each other's company more, uh, something people drink to be more creative, something people drink to talk a little bit more, and frankly, something people drink to feel a little bit better, feeling sick, you know, one of the amazing things about why, I'll credit my beer people here as well, is that water in the in the antiquity times was not necessarily sterile. And a beverage that contains you know 12 or more percent alcohol by volume is going to be more sterile than regular water. Beer, and now there is my dear friend Charlie Bamforth, who's a they call him the Pope of foam in the beer industry. He's very well known, uh, wrote a book called Grape Versus Grain, where he talks about how beer might have been more important than wine in antiquity as an art form because beer actually had to be boiled in many ways to be to be made, and that killed cholera and anything that was in the water. But I believe that wine, wine when it's made, is um, you know really allowed to, to get nice and and, and, when the alcohol forms and and mixes in with with you know the grape juice or the water if you will and sugar when the sugars get eaten up to form form wine alcohol um we end up with with wine in the glass that we can drink fairly safely uh probably more safely than the water and there are accounts of kids actually drinking wine with their parents because they um you know it it was healthier than, than just the water. Uh, so it's interesting to think about the, the history of wine, but uh, fast forward a few thousand years to 2021 uh, to where we are right now, and how we enjoy wine in the United States. The way that I think we really enjoy wine in the United States so well is we've crafted the, the art of perfecting wine production. So no, we don't use and for I, we don't use. We do actually use human feet to crush fruit, but we sanitize them and sterilize them ahead of time because we know we should do that probably in order to avoid infection and, and all these sorts of things. But uh, most importantly, we, uh, you know, we've learned how to treat wine as both an art and science. And winemakers, in my opinion, happen to be artists who happen to know a little bit of biochemistry. And my goal with my career, as said earlier, is really to span that intersection and straddle that intersection as well as I can, pardon my voice here for cracking, between art and science. And I feel like wine is a great way to do that. As someone who's a chemist by training, but a food and beverage entrepreneur by love and passion and later training, I really feel like science fills our toolbox with the tools that we need to build the hammers, the saws, the drills, the nails, the screws, the fasteners, you name it. But the art is really developed in how we build things and how we decide to put things together. And I think the same thing, if I might if I might be so bold, is to draw the same parallel uh, between wine and Uh, As I talk about art and science, you know, in in terms of wine, the science of wine is, of course, um, how the grapes were grown, the uh, climatic factors affecting that vintage, that growing season, um, all sorts of elements that, you know, when we grow a grape, we, uh, let's think about a grapevine as it grows, Grapevines are what we call perennials, by the way. So they, typical grapevines vines last between 30 and 50 years. When you're about old vine grapes, that typically means grapes from vines that are over 50 years old. And some vines that we have, at least in California, especially in the, uh, the uh, excuse me, Ecuador <clears throat> County area and near Sacramento, are Zinfandel vines that are well over 100 years old. I've heard of 120, 130, even 140 year old vineyard. So vines that have been around for a long time and are still producing fruit. But when we think about a grapevine, how it how it produces fruit, it produces it every year, we don't cut the vine down each year like we do with a tomato or a cucumber or something like that. So they're perennials, right. And every year is different it could be based on the vine and and we could see similar characteristics based on one particular vine but that's a lot less likely than seeing particular characteristics based on the growing season and when it all starts to matter is when the buds first break out on the on the vines and that tends to happen around march 1st okay Bud break first occurs usually around March 1st. We used to see April 1st, but climate change has now helped us push that to March 1st. And um, when that happens, now the grape, the bud that is going to form the cluster of grapes, which we're going to use in our wine, is exposed. And that bud grows and turns into a flower with seed pods. And that those seed pods turn into little itty-bitty clusters of grapes. And then those clusters start to raise in size a little bit, and then eventually they start to ripen. And when they ripen, we call this veraison in in France or French or veraison. And that's what happens as the grapes ripen between usually 1st of July or so and the Beginning to middle of September, when when fruit is typically harvested, and these dates I'm giving here are total averages. They, you know, some fruit goes in, into bud break later. Some fruit is harvested earlier. Some's harvested later. Anything is possible. These are just averages. Now, the conditions that affect grape vines as they're growing, uh, or grape clusters rather, as they're growing on the vine during that time, are wide ranging, and just very broad. All the way from water how much water is around were we in a drought year sorry drinking some tea um did we have a lush year you know when we experience drought grapes tend to be smaller but also when they're smaller they're more concentrated with their flavor and that's a big deal you know if you have a lot more concentrated grapes uh you you, you have less yield so the Vine produces a lower tonnage or weight, if you will, lower, less number of tons of fruit per acre. But uh, the fruit tends to be smaller, and grapevines tend to give each of their berries about the same amount of nutrients and sugar. So that means a lot more flavor and less water, which means a much more concentrated wine with a delicious aroma and just a delightful um, character there. And that is is something that I think is is really amazing about um, grapes is is how they change based on the amount of water around. The next factor we consider is how much heat is around. If the time when they're ripening is really warm, they're going to get sweeter and sweeter grapes produce more alcohol. If it's cooler, they're gonna be a little more acidic California tends to grow wines, produce grapes, produce higher alcohol than Oregon wines because our climate tends to be a little bit cooler. Um, really, so many factors affect the way that um, you know that wines are are, are produced. When they're still in grape form when uh, viticulturists and winemakers alike decide that it's time to harvest the fruit. They um, Pick, pick the grapes off the vine and bring them in at harvest. Usually they do this late at night, by the way. And the reason they do it late at night is so that the fruit comes in cool because they want the fermentation to start nice and slow. They don't want the fruit to come in hot and arid off the off the hot day's sun at the end of the day. They typically start picking around two or three in the morning and bring in this delightfully cool fruit to the winery so they can pitch their yeast, and the winemakers can pitch their yeast and create amazing wine. So once a grape hits the winery, it gets put it through what's called a crusher de-stepper, which is a device that is very self-explanatory. It literally crushes the fruit, squeezes the grapes between a couple of rubber rollers that are not harsh, but they're rather very delicate, and removes the stems through basically a colander that you might think about Um, sorting pasta or draining pasta from its watering. Once the grapes go through the crusher to stemmer, we choose whether we're making red or white wine. If we're making red wine, they go directly into the fermenter with their skins and their seeds still there with the juice. And in the fermenter, we do what's called pitching the yeast. That's like a baseball pitcher pitches the ball. We pitch the yeast or add the yeast, into the grape mixture and we don't typically add yeast that are um you might think of as like bread yeast like dry yeast we tend to mix them with a little bit of water first so they're nice and and dissolved and we add them in and as you can imagine the wine grape juice now is really sweet and the yeast just love that sugar right and they just start eating it and as yeast eat sugar they uh transform the sugar into alcohol and alcohol is what forms the basis of, you know, the, the ethanol nature of wine. We'll get to here in a minute, but what happens when you make wine is you actually break open cages uh, of sugar molecules that wrap around these things that add all the amazing flavor that we get when we taste wine. I'll get to that in just a minute, but let me go back to talking about the process. Once we've crushed and bestemmed, we make a red wine, we go to the straight to the fermenter, like I said. And the red pigment, by the way, from the seeds and the skins alike, adds the color to our red wine. Now, if we're making a white wine, we take the grapes straight from the crusher fermenter, we put them in a press. We press away all the pulp, all the skins and the seeds, and we're left with just pure juice, which then we add our yeast to and ferment and then age. Now red wines where we want to capture that, that pigment of the, of the red grape uh, skin and, and whatnot, once the wine is fermented to completion, we press away the skins and the seeds and then are left with just the juice that goes in usually into barrel barrel or into tanks with oak chips in them how to make that fermentation happen. Now you might be asking, what do we do when we make a rose? Which is basically a red grape, like rosé of Pinot Noir, rosé of sauvignon, rosé of Grenache. That has not been fermented all the way. to what we call dryness, which is the point where the wine has no sugar. Um, when we make rosé, we ferment with the skins and the seeds just as we would a red until we get the color that we like the most, right? And then once we get the color that we like the most, we press it and we remove the skins and the seeds while it's still in the process of fermentation and then we put it back in the fermenter just as juice and finish the fermentation to dryness that's how you get rose all the meanwhile as we're fermenting and i'm sorry for the the long sort of pontification of the winemaking process before we taste but i do think it makes tasting much more exciting um when we When we ferment grape juice to form wine, we're literally converting sugars into ethanol, which is an alcohol source, uh, via yeast, which are little fungi. And the name of the yeast, the genus and species of the yeast that are used customarily in the wine industry are Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And those yeast... uh, when we ferment wine, literally break down cages of sugar molecules. So sugars like linking up with each other. You might have heard the term polysaccharide before. That's just many sugars linked up on each other. One end of sugars tends to love water and the other part of sugars tends to not like water so much. So the parts that love water to hang out out in the the watery part of the grape juice and the parts that don't like water tend to hold on to little tiny organic molecules that have a lot of flavor. These are things like anthocyanins, flavonoids, carotenoids, um, gosh, all sorts of things, katakins, all sorts of natural products, we call them, which are chemistry-based natural products that really add a ton of flavor uh, you know, to the wine. When we taste a grape by itself, or some juice right at the time of harvest, we tend to just taste a lot of sugar. Maybe we taste a little bit of that Welch's grape juice flavor, that's all good. And we get overwhelming, over overwhelming uh, tannins if we bite down on seeds. And those are stringent tannins, right? They make your mouth dry. We'll talk about that in a minute as we taste our wines. Um, but really, what we're interestingly to me when we make wine we're converting those you know grapes don't taste when you eat them at harvest like they're going to be as beautifully complex as they can get when we make wine but what makes wines complex all of many things many many things make wines complex but the couple that i'll mention tonight are that number one we break those sugars down and we release those those flavor molecules out of the sugar cages (laughs) And number two we often age our wines either in oak or in stainless steel which gives them a uh, a chance to change flavor a little bit as they as they age and as they as they settle and the oak will add a lot of its flavor on its own now the other thing that that i want to pay attention to here with this tasting is that wine is subjective okay wine is whatever you want to make of it People might think of me as a wine expert, but I'm just someone who knows what kind of wines I like. And it's as simple as that. And I I like all the wines that I've recommended for tonight. But if you don't like a wine, by all means, you know, let me let me know. And I'm fine with that. Just like art is subjective. I, I enjoy rugs that are made of wool. But some people really don't like that because wool is too heavy and feels too thick to them. So that's just like art is objective. Wine is also extremely objective. And I just want to honor that in wine and in the conversation that we have tonight, that we can like what we like. I want you to be able to feel comfortable to pair wine with whatever you like to pair your wine with. You know, I wouldn't necessarily for myself pair a beautiful, you know, French Bordeaux, old, old red wine with, um, you know, really spicy food, but if that's what you like, by all means, that's what you should do. There's no right answers with wine. Wine is whatever we wanna make of it. And the other thing that I love about wine is it is related to more academic fields than anything else I can think of. History relates to wine, math relates to wine, chemistry, physics, biology, law, philosophy, economics, business, All these fields can be related to wine. Now, I I need to just take 30 seconds and go grab one of the wines. I'm so sorry, I'm going to mute my line. But I'm going to come back. Before we start our tasting, I'm going to ask if there are any questions. I'll be right with you in 30 seconds.
0: So I hope everybody has their wine ready. (laughs) This is quite fascinating. I can't speak for the rest of y'all, but I'm my 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 geeky self is like totally nerding out over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me too. I'm going. Yes, knowledge, big words, yay! <laughs> Makes it so much more interesting, dude. So, um, being be, being the ex wine lover that that I am, I, I instead have a little bit of whiskey. I have Jello because my plan with my wine was to have all my kids over, which did not work. So, when this recording is available, I'm going to do a special event with my kids. Oh, no, nice. oh, that sounds fun. And, yeah.
3: and Carrie, yeah, Carrie I'll one-up you there. I would be honored to join you on Zoom with your kids and do this again.
0: Ooh. Oh, that would be nice. Cool. Oh, awesome. I want to come. I want to come. Me too. Me too. Me too. <laughs> He's adopting me you apparently. Just expanded your party. <laughs> awesome, thanks, Obi. I'll I'll be in touch. You got it.
3: Thanks. You got it. <laughs> By the way, Carrie, I was wondering, is Peter with us tonight?
0: Um, I have not seen him on here. I he does. Ha- no, it's on um, ACB Media Eight. So I don't know if he's out there in in that land. I'll check in with him and let you know so- shortly.
3: Well, Peter. <laughs> Peter is the reason that I know you all and uh, I just want to thank him because I love you all. You're a great group of people. Um,
4: that would be a you. fun holiday wine tasting for ACBO. Ooh, yes please. <laughs> so yes. now do will
0: get my private wine tasting you guys. <laughs> all right,
3: I, 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 the, the cat's out of the box. I'll do two of them. <laughs> We'll do the Thank holiday day. one, too.
0: <laughs> You're awesome.
3: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> this is fun for me uh, to be with great folks like y'all. So um, I don't know how many people are in the webinar still with us. I hope we have. I, hope I didn't bore people to sleep and make them leave. Um, I'm excited to, excited to be able to taste some of these wines. So the wines that we're tasting tonight, are all from the Francis Ford Coppola wine collection, and they're from the Francis Ford Coppola Diamond Collection of wines. Um, one of the reasons that I use Coppola wines all the time is because they're who got me started in the industry. When I was a chemist, um, I studied in in Davis, but sort of ironically, um, right at the same time as I um, was starting my my graduate career. I got a call from a friend who knew Francis Coppolo's Coplo wants to do a blindfolded wine experience. and He wants it to be led by a blind person. And I said, well, yeah, but it's not going to be gimmicky. We're not going to use the blindfolds to play games or have any weird little fun and spill a bunch of food on ourselves. We're going to use the blindfolds only as a way to focus our attention and heighten our, our way of perceiving the world. And Coppola was all into that. I then started to work with him and co-innovated uh, the program that I that I designed called Tasting in the Dark with him. And uh, it was it was really exciting. It went went really well. People really enjoyed it and you know soon got picked up by their national sales team. And I'm still a consultant with their national sales team, but that that opportunity really spawned my career into the world of food and beverage and you know ultra high touch point sensory design, which is what I do. You'll hear a little bit more about a lot more about that tomorrow uh when i when i speak tomorrow evening but uh copal is a great respecter of mine i'm a great respectant of theirs and uh it's just always an honor to be able to feature their wines to group like you groups like you guys i don't know who uh, was able to acquire the wines that i that i mentioned but uh if you were able to acquire them they're, they're a lot of fun We're tasting four California wines. California not meaning specifically Sonoma County or or anything like that. Rather, uh, the appellation is California, which means the fruit has to come from California. We don't necessarily know where. I happen to know where for all these wines. So the first wine I'm holding up, which is chilled right now, is the Francis Ford Cope Diamond Collection Sauvignon Blanc. I like to start things with a sonium Blanc. It's actually very refreshing and very tasty. I'm going to pour a little bit of my glass. You'll hear that. Just a nice little taster. This is screw cap wine, which I'm also a big fan of screw cap wines. Sorry, I'm also a big fan of screw cap wines because they uh, are very easy to open and they seal really well. When you put that tap back on, you're done. Have to worry about sticking the cork back in, and how am I going to get the air out, and all that stuff that we often worry about. You just put the cap back, and they're done. So, three out of the four wines that we'll be tasting tonight actually uh, all come with a screw cap. So, um, I like to start out with a tasting, when I, when I smell the wine, sticking my nose in the glass, smelling this, wine. I normally like to ask people what they're tasting, what they're getting from the wine. But because we're on webinar, I'm just going to tell you what I'm smelling here. By the way, before I start to smell wine and really understand it, I like to breathe two deep breaths of air through my nose. So I'm going to do one just from the space that I'm in, from the atmosphere that I'm in, not smelling the wine at all. And two, it's just nice to clear my palate there, kind of a yoga meditation. You thought you were coming to a wine tasting, but I'm making it a meditation.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: If I stick my nose in the glass. That's a beautiful, beautiful wine aroma of uh, some passion fruit. I'd also say a really nice floral component of um, jasmine, a little bit of honeysuckle, a little bit of lilac. And one of the things that really comes through this wine for me is um, stone fruit, peaches, apricots. Nectarines, plums, and slightly underripe. So, when it's still nice and perfumey and it's not just so sweet, you can imagine taking a bite of a peach and still having just a little bit of crisp to it. I also smell melon, like cantaloupe and that sort of thing. And a lot of herbal notes, a little bit of thyme and rosemary, maybe even a little bit of uh, tarragon. If you've smelled that, it's an herb that has a very distinctive aroma. Uh, that I can only describe as the hills of West Marin County, which is just south of me between me and San Francisco. That's where I get a lot of that tarragon aroma. It's almost like anise or fennel. <coughs> Excuse me, but not quite. Coffers.
0: I think of it as being a little bit more floral than fennel or anise.
3: Exactly. Yeah, tarragon's a little more floral. One of my favorite chickens is so simple to make. It's tarragon chicken. And for that, you just take chicken thighs, you know, with the skin on and the bone in. I like to make sure my chicken is dry. So either dry it really well with a paper towel or let it sit in the fridge for four to six hours, unwrapped on a cookie sheet. Then I coat it with a lot of olive oil and salt and pepper and literally dried or better yet fresh tarragon and roasted for about 45 minutes, 400. And that's just delightful and it's so simple
0: ah uh, yes amen it's not hard no no it's not
3: let's taste this one mm. boy the flavor just coats the mouth so delicately it's soft it it tastes like it's gonna it smells like you might expect sweetness when you when you taste it because it's so floral and perfuming but what's funny is you don't actually taste much sweetness at all it's a dry wine which means a non-sweet wine and just so nice and and delicious on the palate it's very acidic so it's a mid to high acidity levels which is a good thing for a wine like this to be to be right in that range um it means it's it's just starts out with a little bit of a burn uh which is what we call the trigeminal burn when the wine first hits your tongue, and uh that's where you feel most burn like when you drink soda and you feel the carbonation that is a nerve down your tongue called the trigeminal nerve which is giving you that that burn or that sense of tingling, and that's also the way that we happen to taste acid when we when we taste wine. Um, and as it moves back on our palate, and that trigeminal sense becomes lesser, we experience more uh, just fresh fruit and, and less acid, and more of a velvety texture to the wine. Um, what I would say here is that this wine. It starts. There are three regions that I want to highlight tonight. Three regions that I want to highlight tonight on our palate, where we can really taste what's happening in a wine. The frontmost region is right when the wine first hits our palate, or first kisses our teeth, is what I mean. And that's where we taste all sorts of, um, in this wine particularly, floral notes. So a lot of those uh, jasmine, honeysuckle, lilac. Jasmine, by the way, is a night-blooming flower, and there's nothing that I enjoy more than walking outside when jasmine is blooming in the spring or the fall at night and smelling just the way that it fills the air. Also, a little bit of fuchsia in this wine, too. Uh, Then the mid-palate, which, by the way, I'll use these terms later in the tasting as well, front, mid, and back palate. Front is what I just described. Mid-palate, if you stick your tongue up to the roof of your mouth, you can feel right where your hard and soft palates come together. And that's what i call the mid palate and here with this wine, i get a little bit of floral but also all that fruit i was talking about the stone fruit the melon um a little green apple fresh green apple here and then the back palate, the back palate. right when you swallow the wine which is what i call sort of just before the wine passes the point of no return as it's going down your throat um that's where i taste all the greenness in this wine all the delicious herbs uh, that that tarragon, a little bit of that thyme, a bit sort of fresh cut green grass it has a greenness to it that's really special. Um, and and it's just a just an easy drinking wine. I love this on a hot summer day or a cool night. I'm drinking it now because it's so easy to drink and it's so approachable. Uh, you can pair anything with it, but I love doing just. a like a simple goat cheese on a cracker with a little honey and maybe a piece of prosciutto di parma uh, or parma ham over the top. But you can use any cheese and any fruit and uh, and any, any meat that you want. But I, I really do like uh, thin-cut ham, whether it be from Italy or Spain or wherever. Uh, you all sent me some wild huckleberry syrup, and I'm really excited. I know that's an Oregon thing. I'm excited about using that instead of jelly on the next uh, cheese and, and charcuterie uh pairing that I do with a wine like this. So thank you for that. Uh this wine I believe is a is a 2020, uh 2019 or 20. I don't have a sighted person around to look at the label for me. I'm sorry. Uh and uh this is mostly from Sonoma County about uh, 55% from Sonoma County. And that gives it a big, bold stone fruit flavor. It comes from an area called the Dry Creek Valley, which is a very, very lush area, area of Sonoma County. And then the remaining 45% comes from Lake County, which is an area northeast of Sonoma County here in uh, California. All this is just north of San Francisco, by the way, by two counties. Uh, Lake County and the area in particular where these grapes were grown offers, uh, you know, really nice dry soils, uh, much like New Zealand, which is famous, and particularly Marlborough, New Zealand, which is famous for Sauvignon Blanc, um, kind of a very green aroma. And they get very hot days and very cold nights because they're further from the ocean. And they're further from the Russian River than Dry Creek. So the fruit tends to be a little bit grown in a little bit more harsh conditions. And you can you typically taste that when you when you taste it, which I really, really think is cool and I appreciate a lot. Um, that is wine number one. Any questions before we go on to wine number two? I'll move on to wine number two. So, what I'm holding up now is the Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, let me get it the right way. Now you can see the diamond if you can see it all. Uh Francis Ford Coppola Diamond Collection Chardonnay. From California. I'll talk about where the fruit comes from for this in a minute, but it comes from the Monterey County area, which is a very special area for um, uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And I'll explain why. I'm just going to pour myself a little bit of this wine. And do so. Carrie, by the way, is this being broadcasted on ACB Radio?
0: It is. It's on ACB Media 8. Oh, wow. And tomorrow's will be as well. So we probably have listeners out there that, you know, don't have, you know, they can't talk to you yet right now. But
3: (laughs) Well, I love that. We're out on the radio, too. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm going to smell this Chardonnay. I'm going to take a few breaths of air through my nose. Just relax my mind. Hmm, let me smell the wine. Oh my gosh, Chardonnay, another white wine, but so different from the Sauvignon Blanc. So the way the Sauvignon Blanc was made is it was made in oak barrels. Sorry, the Sauvignon Blanc was made only in stainless steel tanks, never saw any oak. But the Chardonnay was made in, you know, fermented and produced in oak oak barrels um, and stirred regularly with the lees in it. Bringing that lees up was was a technique called fermentation batonage, which is literally suspending the lees in with the the juice that's fermenting or is already fermented. And it creates a really thick mouthfeel and, and sort of nice, rich mid palate, if you remember what mid palate was from before. And the other thing that oak does, oak, in my opinion, in wine is used, should be used just like a spice. It's used to add and coax with the palate, but not to like overpower in any way, shape or form. And in this wine, it does that, just that. It it adds such finish to it. It adds a um, flavor and quality of vanilla. And, and a little bit of a woodsy sort of settler-like character, but it doesn't add anything offensive or or different than that. So I really appreciate that aspect of the of the wine as we as we taste it and and think about it and appreciate it. Um, when I smell this wine, I get all sorts of. Um, nice fruit aromas first one is green apple but not like a fresh green apple right on the tree what i'm thinking of is more of a browning green apple take a green apple cut it in half set it on the counter for a few hours and then come back and smell it later you're going to smell it starts to oxidize a little bit almost smell a little bit like a baked apple when something smells a little bit more like a baked apple you get a little bit more of that um that nice uh, sort of caramely quality that I that I just love and appreciate about um, sure like this one. A little bit of butter that's coming through from a compound called diacetyl, which is in the oak, uh, which well, which is prominent in oak fermentation. It's not technically in the oak, but it's it's there, and it's a just a delightful flavor. Um, a little bit of pie crust, you know, that's where that butter comes from. Also some nice cherry, fresh, fresh cherry. I uh, get some berry, berries, a little bit of strawberry. I'm gonna show you a party trick that I like to do. I like to hold the glass in my hand that I'm dominant with and then I write with, cut with, et cetera. And then I place my other hand over the top and I just hold the top of the glass solid, sealed. So I'm actually sealing my hand between the, the wine and the, the top of the glass and the li- liquid level of the wine and I swirl around a little bit and then I smell again and I just concentrate the aroma Yeah, and I get almost like underripe plum a little bit of fig, that butter, that oak vanilla quality. One thing you all are famous for in Oregon are hazelnuts and I get a ton of beautiful hazelnut on the nose of this. That's delightful. I'm going to taste it. Mm. Wow! So light, yet full of flavor on the palate. Um, it's very. It's not overly. It's not overkill in any way. It's not bold. It's just very. It has possesses great um, fine art or finesse, if you will. And um, the first thing that comes to mind when I taste it, actually not when I smell it, but when I taste it, is the floral character, and that's gardenia. If you've smelled gardenia, it's just an amazing sort of aroma. A little bit of very mild geranium in here, but the most prominent thing for me is blooming gardenia. And if you haven't gotten the chance to smell a blooming gardenia or even a blooming iris in the springtime in April and May, you should absolutely find a way to do so. And then I taste the brown and green apple, a little bit of cinnamon, a lot of uh, hazelnut, a little bit of nutmeg to me, a little bit of toasted hazelnut. And by the way, the toast is coming in from the oak itself. So really, really nice there. With the toast coming in from the oak, we tend to toast our oak barrels in order to release flavor from them, so that the wines, you know, the barrels a little bit of char, and the wines have just a touch of that flavor in them. Really, really nice and, and gorgeous as it is. I, I appreciate this wine very much, and everything it has to offer. Um, the back, the mid-palate is really full of fruit, full of that sort of white peach. Um, again, the brown apple, brown green apple. Um a little bit of raisin a little bit of that nice dried fruit character and the back, back, back palate is all your hazelnut a little bit of nutmeg and just delightful vanilla like oak toasty notes again this is a chardonnay i'm drinking it by what i call the 2020 rule um, which i share with other people it's not necessarily what i always abide by but the rule is you know if you're drinking a white wine put it in the refrigerator for the day and then take it out twenty minutes before you drink it because you don't want to drink it so cold as refrigerator temperature. You want to be able to taste more of it. And then the uh, other part of the twenty twenty rule is with a red wine, a lot of people like them at room temperature. I really like them at cellar temperature, so I always put them in the refrigerator for at least twenty minutes if I have time uh, before drinking them. If they come out of my house, my cellar. If they come out of my cellar, they're fine, but. It's a good rule to remember as we're as we're enjoying wine. So this wine came out of the fridge about 20 minutes before I tasted it. Uh this wine's interesting. You know, I really I don't know if you any of y'all have had pork belly, but I love taking pork belly and brining it in just salt and sugar and whatever herbs and spices you want. You can do an Indian take, you can do a Thai take with lemongrass, you can do a a peppercorn take with any peppercorns you have. You can do like a Mediterranean take with basil and bay, but whatever you want to. Pork belly is one of these, and pork in general, by the way, is one of these sort of empty canvas sort of things. You can do whatever you want with it. And chicken's the same way. And you can you can just have fun. So do that with your pork belly, brine it in whatever you want for at least two days, and then cut it into cubes and sear it on a really hot skillet on all sides. Uh, you know about two minutes to a side so it gets nice and crispy and they have these beautiful cubes of pork belly that are fatty and meaty and possess so much we call umami which is that that richness of flavor that being over the top that i just absolutely love and adore um that's a really good way to really good way to taste this wine uh, sometimes I do it with sautéed mushrooms. I would never, never sauté mushrooms with this wine. It's too—I mean, I would—and I always say, only cook with what you're willing to drink. But right now, I'm not thinking about using the rest of spot for cooking. I'm thinking about drinking it, you know, over the next few days with my partner. Um, but that's a good food pairing—is—is is that pork? And if you're so bold, you guys have a lot of great wild mushrooms up in up in Oregon. And if you have stores that sell them, you know, get some chanterelles, get some good mushrooms and uh, saute them in plenty of butter until they've weeped out all their water and uh, finish it off with some salt and a nice amount of ground nutmeg. You can thank me later for the nutmeg and mushrooms. It's really amazing and works really, really well with this wine.
0: You know, my brother asked me the other day if I ever needed mushrooms because he's been chanterelle picking lately.
3: <laughs> well, if you ever if you ever run out of a need, tell him there's someone in California who's in deep need.
0: <laughs> that never occurred to me. The nutmeg with the mushrooms. I'm now going to have to try that. I see how that would work, though.
3: You know, it's autumn, autumn on autumn.
0: Seriously.
3: So who do we have here? We have Carrie and who else is with us?
0: Oh, the one that keeps talking to you is Desiree. I'm 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 a foodie. So
3: Hey Desiree, how are you?
0: Grand. I might actually have to go try wine again.
3: You should. What (laughs) part of Oregon are you in?
0: I'm in Portland, and, and I should say that I used to really love and adore wine, but then my palate changed, and I just couldn't find any that I really liked. And then I discovered Spirits, and that that's where I've gone.
3: Do you, I don't know if you know my dear, dear friend Lee at Freeland Spirits.
0: No, I don't know him personally, but I think I've heard of him.
3: Lee is a, is a woman, and it's an all-woman team at Freeland. A lesbian okay, now I got to go that, look. A lesbian couple that runs it. Oh, sweet. I think, or an LGBT couple at least. At I do care. It's yeah. not a
0: woman thing, so.
3: Anyway, it's, it's an amazing, it's one of my favorite distilleries of all time, and it's it's in downtown Portland. Sweet.
0: What do they specialize in?
3: You got to go taste and find out.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, usually distilleries or, you know, vodka or whiskey or something. That's what I mean.
3: They do, I, to the best of my knowledge, they do mostly, they do a really good vodka and they do some, some cool whiskeys too. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go find them now. Good, good. R-E-E-L-A-N-D. Ooh. In my Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, red wine. Oh, I told you I'd tell you where the uh, Chardonnay came from. I should do that. Those grapes actually come from Monterey County. And Monterey County here in California is south of San Francisco on the California coast, uh, Southern, Central California coast. And um, Monterey is beautiful. And grapes that grow anywhere in Monterey County are amazing because they have a very slow ripening time. They uh, ripen starting, you know, in sort of June, July. But as you might imagine, any fruit ripens faster when it's hotter, right? So if it's cool, they ripen slower. And why is it cool in Monterey? Well, it's you know, we chemists are nerds, but water has a very high specific heat, meaning it can hold on to energy very quickly, you know, very easily and release it slowly. But then it also takes it a long time to absorb energy. So what happens is that we have cool days because the water is, you know, at night, got yeah, cool and is emitting that coolness because the sun heats it up. And then we have warmer nights because the water gets warm during the day and reflects, it's that, not it reflects, but absolutely emits that coolness, uh, you know, or that warmness from the day during the night. So it's a very mild climate with a very, you know, not very uh, substantial degree shift, day to day, hour to hour, and grapes can ripen really slowly there. That's the sort of thought in Burgundy, France, where um, a lot of beautiful uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir uh, grow. So that's where the Chardonnay fruit is from. That's also where the Pinot Noir fruit is from that we're about to try. And Pinot Noir is, is, is definitely one of the, in my opinion, one of my one of my favorite uh, varietals in terms of reds because it it is so finicky to make, but when you make it right, it's just so delightful and so easy to drink, um, and absolutely one of my one of my favorites. So when I smell this wine, usually I do this in the dark dark with folks they don't know what's coming, but now we're doing it all open, so we're thinking Pinot. We're thinking a little bit of cherry cola. I get that. Beautiful black cherry. A little bit of that Coca Cola smell. By the way, the aromas that make Coca Cola mainly are lemon, sorry, lime, cinnamon, and vanilla. That's the Coke smell that we tend to get. And then I get all sorts of fruit, fig, oh, pomegranate. Black currant. A little bit of sort of a gamey flavor, almost like a mushroomy quality. Or if you ever smell the raw duck in the best possible way, that sort of gaminess that a raw duck possesses. I just love. I'll put my hand on this one and swirl. Oh man, after I do that, I get so many more berries. Blueberry. A little bit of blackberry. Pomegranate. Pomegranates are in season, by the way. If you haven't bought a pomegranate, you should because they're just so delicious. And they're only in season for a couple of weeks out of the year and get them while you can. I also get an amazing spice note from this wine. Oh my gosh, baking spices galore, Uh, cinnamon, uh, cardamom, uh, clove, all sorts of things, all spice, all sorts of things that we want in our mulled wine. This wine right here, folks, is a great wine for Turkey Day. Pinot Noir and a turkey dinner, in my opinion, pair absolutely brilliantly. I taste it. So much of that fruit that we would expect dark fruit I'm saying a few berries but not as much berries as it is overripe almost black fruits like fig um, well overripe plum um, a little bit of citrus just a tiny bit of citrus here a lot of that um, I honestly when I taste this, I get a lot of black cherry, like really black cherry. And the floral notes, it almost tastes like rose water. And if you take a sip, breathe air through it. Mmm. It really taste a little bit of rose, rose and violet and gorgeous floral characters. By the way, now that we're under red wines, we get a lot more of the tannins to play with. And in this wine, I have many more of the wood tannins, not as many of the um what do we call them? The uh the grape skin and seed tannins. And wood tannins tend to be a little bit more bitter. So this wine, the fruit also is from Monterey County, which means that it ripens very slowly. Um it's very refined. The it has been aged in oak barrels and uh the oak is I don't know the exact percentages, but mostly American, which is a an oak that's lighter in density, so uh, less dense than French or Hungarian, which are the two that we use to, to age wine in. Uh, and lighter in density means that it releases more of its flavor, more of its vanilla, more of its woody character. But they balance that with a little bit of Hungarian, a little bit of French oak to create a really nice flavor profile. Um, Hungarian oak is right between American and French in terms of the the hardness, French oak being the hardest, American being the least or the softest. And the the hardest oak releases flavors much more slowly, so it can be used even longer and uh, is less impactful for sure on the first use. You know, I love any meat dish with um, Pinot Noir. Two of my favorites are lamb. So we have a product that's going in your auction basket called Hobie's Essentials. And I love taking lamb chops and roasting or uh, rubbing them all over with my rosemary salt, Hobie's Essentials, rosemary salt, and then searing them really hot, hot, hot on either a pan or a grill. And you just get this absolutely exquisite flavor of lamb and pinot. The other thing I love doing is taking rosemary salt, a bunch of onions and leeks, whatever vegetables you have, and stuffing the cavity of a duck and then roast that duck on a roasting pan, ideally on a roasting rack. So you can save the fat from the duck. The fat that comes off the duck is often called chef's gold because it's so rich and so delicious. And then uh, finally, you just take that and... Uh, You know use the the fat if you have it to wilt some chard and then fry off some some potatoes that you've boiled ahead of time or potato pieces to get nice and crispy and it's just absolutely stunning so i love these sorts of things and the thought of doing doing food this way and really really just making it a part of whatever we do and however we do it um Again, this is I believe, 2019 wine and it's uh, a really nice flavor. Toby, uh, this is, uh, or Hobie,
2: this is Pat Schwab that uh, um, I'm in the session after you, but I'm having such a wonderful time. I'd say let you go as uh, long as, uh, as you're comfortable and, and I can make up whatever I was gonna do tomorrow so so you know if you if you uh so if anyone out there is like carrie or uh anyone is worried that uh, that i'm uh i'm not happy that uh that that i'm i'm just absolutely delighted i do want to say that uh that uh in the early 70s when i was still in uh college that i was was the wine steward at uh at a restaurant called called london grill and, and and that uh, that I also taught, taught a class as a senior in college an upper division class called History of Europe Through Its Wines you know so so that, that wow. was a fun class to do
3: oh. so,
0: so you don't like wine do you Pat?
3: Oh we have it every <laughs>
0: night <laughs>
3: <laughs> Pat, Pat I'm so sorry I just looked at the time it's five minutes over I, I didn't oh, mean, no, no, you know that No, Hobie, no that's no, great that's Hobie, what he was saying keep going. Awesome. Yeah, keep going Keep going Well, thank you. And Pat, what are you going to be presenting on when you present?
2: Doing history of the uh, uh, ACB of O. uh, One of the things I've got a degree in history, but I'm also an orientation and mobility specialist.
0: And and so we're doing a a game this weekend, uh, and he's presenting history of oregon acb of oregon and then somebody can win tomorrow night after your presentation we're gonna do a, a quiz and somebody can win a 200 visa gift card wow yeah
3: that's awesome that's awesome and pat have you been blind your whole life as well i i'm not blind okay you're an o you're an O&M specialist that's awesome that's correct Well, thank you. I'm not going to cut into your time much more at all. I just want to go through one more wine. Excellent. We are going to be doing a Claret. This is the Francis Ford Coppola uh, Diamond Claret. And this wine is in a gold net. You might be able to see it there on camera. And uh, it's just a a delightful uh, presentation. It stands out on the shelf. And the reason, by the way, this wine is in a gold net is that um, when Francis bought the property that he bought from uh, Mr. Gustav, or sorry, Mr. Niebaum, excuse me, Gustav Niebaum, who owned it in 1864 in the Napa Valley, Francis bought it long beyond Gustav Niebaum's passing uh, in 1976 is when he bought it. But he went to the cellar and found a bottle of Claret that was uh, Gustavo had called Claret and said it was his diamond series from his property and it literally was in an all-gold net uh, with a diamond etched and studded uh, right into the label, right into the package. So I think that's an incredible story and that's why the diamond collection came to be. Now the fruit for this wine is found all over the the state of California, focusing on Napa, which is where the property is in Rutherford. the Eldorado Hills, which is an area just east of the town of Sacramento, uh, as well as uh, an area called Lodi, which is sort of uh, what we call the San Joaquin Valley, uh, about eighty miles south, sixty miles, fifty miles south of Sacramento. So it's a it's a great thing that we can, uh, you know we can sort of pay homage to history of, of who Francis knows and his connections and the whole thing. So I smell this wine. Oh, jeez, poor um, lot there. This wine, claret, by the way, is a cabernet-based blend. Uh, claret is you know, a as they try to say in French, is the um, the name of the the blend of the uh, five French Bordeaux varietals, which are cabernet sauvignon, cabernet franc, merlot. Malbec, and Petit Verdun. But in in France, they call that Meritage, or marriage. But the British don't really care for the French. They come up with their own word for it, just claret, right? So these wines are now called Clarets. And that's fine. Big deal. Um, and they're, they're delightful wines. And this blend happens to be 80% Cabernet Sauvignon, at least. So it can be marketed on the shelf as a Cabernet Sauvignon. And then the other 20% are blends of the other four Bordeaux blends that are Bordeaux red grapes that we we don't know year to year what they are. But they work hard with this wine because it's such a flagship wine to make it consistent. And when I smell this wine, it's just nothing but fruit. You know, it's, it's berry, uh, pomegranate, a little bit of dried plum, lots of blueberry when I cover the top. Cover the top and shake around with your hand on top. And smell. Oh man, blueberry. A lot of um, what I would call sandalwood here. A lot of tobacco, like wet, not, not cigarette tobacco, but like sticky, fresh, stick to your fingers, pipe tobacco and like your grandfather's leather trunk so like nice old tack leather from a tack room of a horse barn and a little bit of cedar cedar as well cedar wood along with the oak when i taste this wine i'm going to show you a few different ways to taste it to really explore the tannins take your first sip and just swish it around like mouthwash and swallow so there I don't really experience, I know there are tannins there. They're kind of poking out at me, but they're not making themselves so bold. I'm about to show you how to make them bold. Take a sip, do the same thing, swish it around like mouthwash. And then breathe some air through that same sip. What I'm doing for folks who, can't see me is i'm literally breathing air through the the wine with my head tilted slightly forward and my lips closed so i don't lose any wine out of my palate but it creates this incredible way to taste wine and experience that that tannin and what we're doing literally when we do that and we taste it is we're oxidizing the tannins piece by piece and creating just just incredible incredible flavor as we uh as we do it, and I, I really love tannins, by the way, are little tannic acid molecules that we, they feel dry to us. But the reason they feel dry is because they're forming little pockets of denatured protein on our tongue, which, which makes us feel dry. They're not actually drying out our mouth. They're just denaturing the protein in our saliva. I want to practice one more sip where we chew on the water, literally take a sip until your head up chin up and then just chew Closing your esophagus, of course, with your tongue, but chewing on the wine. Wow. And you can really.
2: Just so
0: you're aware, you haven't been on video at all. I haven't? Nope. But most of us can't see, so I don't know that it matters. And I suspect there's quite a few tuning in via ACB radio. My God. Oh, now, we see, you.
3: My now camera, we see you. My camera must not have been working. We can see you now. Well, I just reset it. Folks, I apologize. I have my lighting all perfect and everything right. I, I hope I was on video before I left to get my 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 bottle of wine when I when I left half an um. hour ago
0: no i don't think so
3: wow my apologies <laughs> okay. again it's, it's
0: a group of blind people i don't think we mind
3: my,
0: you were very
4: descriptive i
0: second well, that
3: i was holding the bottles up and I'll, I'll do it quickly now for those of you who want to see them this is the diamond sauvignon blanc anyway <laughs> This it's, claret is really, really amazing, really rich. Uh, Diamond Chardonnay. Apologies, Diamond uh, Pinot here.
0: I and like one. the styling of the Pinot. labeling because it's very modern, very approachable. Not all labeling's like that.
3: Desiree, are you cited as well?
0: I am a high partial. Okay. But I grew up with a blind mom and have been in the blind community my entire life. So, so you get it. <laughs> yep.
3: And there's the clarinet and the nice gold, gold label. You can see oh, her. That is pretty. Yeah, she's pretty. Um oh my gosh. if I ever tour night, please, if I'm not on video, you let me know. I'm putting Oops. on a I'm putting on a suit for that one. So gotta <laughs> do it right. <laughs> The, the um, gold net, the gold
2: net on the uh, on the bottle, we took took that off, and the, and our cat immediately attacked it and got tangled in it.
3: I <laughs> love it. Pat, did you get these wines?
2: Absolutely. We're 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 ha- having a great time at our house.
3: I'm my so my wife and I. I'm so happy. And I'm a historian myself, as an, in addition to a chemist. So I can't wait to get to know you better. Well, I'm going to say this wine. This claret is great paired with any burger, just so much flavor, so much leather, so much tobacco, so much fruit. And a lot of people think of a burger as not a great wine food, but man, if you just take a nice, simple burger, don't overload it with jalapenos and onions and all that. I mean, you can put whatever you want on it. But I think a burger in the right context is one of the best wine foods ever. And I've taken way too much of Pat's time. I feel bad about it.
0: (laughs) No, 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 don't no, feel bad. Don't, Everybody's Pat's, been really enjoying it. <laughs> Pat, Pat's, if he's on here saying, please continue,
3: then yeah, you're you're just fine. Don't, don't feel guilty. As long as tea. you promise, promise you mean it, Pat. Thank you.
2: I, Thank you. I absolutely mean it that the, this has been, been really wonderful for
3: me. Believe me. Thank you. And I, I hope we can get in touch with each other because I want to, I want to know you and talk history. <laughs> and I love history.
4: I've never been a wine person, so this is very interesting to hear. (laughs) Who's that, by the way? I'm Cassie.
3: Hey, Cassie, how are you?
4: I'm good. This is just so, I didn't know you could smell and taste all these different things in a wine. And yeah, I've always been kind of a whiskey girl. In my day, so <laughs> no problem with
3: that, my friend.
4: Well, I spent three years in the army, so wine wasn't our go to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, this is Jean Marie. And well, can you guys hear me? Hi. Hobie, I have got to tell you the Coppola Claret is one of my favorite
1: wines. It's I don't have any right now,
0: but but um, I was told that Coppola had several claret's, and I have the impression they don't. They
3: just have one. One.
0: Yeah. Yum, yum, yum. That's all I have to say. And
3: every year it <laughs> changes a little bit. But their goal is consistency.
0: Yeah, it's really good stuff.
3: <laughs> Thank you. And this is
0: Teresa. I'm very interested and excited to expand my very limited <laughs> wine palette. <laughs> <of Desiree's mom. laughs>
3: well, I'm excited to explore that with you in any way I can.
0: Thank you. Uh, yes, this is, I hope you all can hear me. Yep. Hi, Sam Samantha. Hello. Hey, I, as I was listening, I am reminded of the show I Love Lucy, and I'm taken <laughs> back to the episode where I believe her and Ethel are crushing grapes with their feet. I'm uh, kind of laughing to myself. But also I was wondering, why do they pair some cheeses with, or excuse me, some wines with cheeses
4: versus other foods? Or do you know?
3: You know, the reason for that is complex and it's historical as well. And I'm sure Pat could speak to it just as well as I could. The reason mostly that wines are paired with cheeses is because areas where grapes grow are often areas where grasslands are and where cows exist. So it's very common to pair wine with cheese because dairies tend to be very near wineries in the old world. And the new world took that tradition to heart. And that, in my opinion, is the reason. But I agree with you. Why don't you pair wine with fish? Why don't you pair wine with anything? And it's because of where the fruit grows.
0: See, I might have a slight difference, I don't know, point of view, opinion. And for me, when I'm, you know, eating with alcohol, there are flavors that are released that you don't get you're actually cooking with it or you're pairing it eating with something that you just don't get you know because chemistry
3: that's true but i I tend to feel that the flavors of wine and cheese go together and i think nature made that so because the crops grow together or near each
0: other oh okay now that that's on a deeper level man
3: It's a little out there. Sorry.
0: No, that's good. I'm down. (laughs) Would you like to take any more questions?
3: I'd like Um, to defer the time to Pat.
0: I actually have one question I got texted from my friend who's listening via the radio, and she's wondering about something called ice wine, which I've never heard of.
3: Yes, I can explain ice wine precisely. What's your friend's name?
0: Her name is Hiel.
3: Hey, a nice shout out to Hayel. Thank you very much. He in for the Seattle
0: and, and tuning in from work. So there you go.
3: Well, fantastic. I'm sorry you're working a little bit late. But, uh, you know, what I would say, Hayel, about ice wine, it's really incredible because actually what they do when they make ice wine is they let the fruit hang on the vine until first, second, and third frosts hit. And it's not that precise, but it's really until the grapes actually freeze. And they're they're dried out you know the stems are dried up when they pick it's like okay the fruit's frozen it's kind of no good anymore but it really is actually amazing because the vine puts every last bit of energy into producing that great that great fruit that great quality taste um you know as you as you enjoy and as you taste it so ice wines are very rich very cool and very much canadian uh in their in their nature and it literally again is let the fruit frost on the vine when the vine is so stressed like oh my god please for the love of pete get the fruit off of me so it can reproduce it's going to put its all everything it has into that fruit so that's it
0: any recommendations or times of years to buy
3: i don't know ice wine as well as i should i can provide recommendations. If you email me, everyone is welcome to email me at Hobie, H O B Y at Hobiewedler.com, H O B Y W E D L E R H O B Y W E D L E R.com. And, uh, I will look into that for you. Hi, but send me an email.
0: I will. Well, she's listening, so she'll know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I really look forward to your, uh, you know, talking during our banquet tomorrow night.
3: <laughs> Carrie, do, you have just banquet. A, do you have just a couple of minutes to touch base with me about that tomorrow morning?
0: Uh, yeah, I, we start our thing at nine. What time?
3: Can I call you at seven thirty or eight? Oh yeah. Yep. What's best?
0: Um, you know what? I I'll probably be up by three or four a.m.
4: So you know. <laughs> Anytime after 6 a.m. is fine. Morning person. (laughs) Carrie's like one of those, I don't know, almost like a cat. She's up at the crack of dawn. That's way before before the crack of of dawn.
3: (laughs) Carrie, is that that hour of waking up just due to your hosting convention or is that just normal? That's just normal. I'm usually, uh, you know, it's
0: rare if I sleep till 4 a.m. So, yeah. All right. So this time of night, I'm pretty exhausted, guys. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Pat, I'm going to be you listening to you time. in the background, and I can't wait.
4: Awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much. And uh, oh, here we're, we're going to, is is Abby up still? You know she's up. This tomorrow. Awesome. You're so you Abby, know what? I know Abby wants present. to do a couple door prizes. We're going to let I her draw three numbers real present.
0: quick. <laughs> so Bring we're gonna back. let her draw three door
4: <laughs> prize numbers real quick. Yeah, she's been begging <laughs> me. She's like, "What are we gonna do Okay, all right, cool. You get to draw three. Oh, you got to pick three.
0: Okay. And the f- the first prize is a Jelly berry basket from Cranberry Sweets. It was donated um, here from Goose yeah. Bay,
4: so. Go so from rye awesome. to cranberries, right? All right, she's mixing them up really, really good. All right, let's let's she gets 62. 62. 62. Oh, she's oh. going way down, way down in the list to start off. I with. know that's what I'm thinking. 62. Who's <laughs> oh, six, six, eg white swift in Texas? Hey, huh. All right. Yeah, <laughs> so eg one, yay. Awesome. I'm gonna close my eyes. Oh, you're going to close your eyes, too? Okay, just for good measure. Okay. All right. 17. 17. Yeah, way up to the top. <laughs> this 17. one gets a way
0: around sample pack. Ooh, that's awesome. Ooh, nice. I know. They donated quite
4: a few things. They did. 17, right? 17. Yep, 17. We got one more. Hang on. Luther, she won the third one. Awesome. <laughs> All right, let's, what's the third prize, Carrie? Is the it the twenty-five dollars? Yep, yep, twenty-five dollars Amazon one. gift card. Right, what is it? What number? Three. Number three. Number three. Ooh, that's the top of the list. <laughs> I'm gonna
0: get. Okay. If I get to the top of the list.
4: <laughs> Michael Babcock! Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Michael! Awesome. Wow. And made her day. She's been begging me for door prizes. So that, <laughs> nice. is, that is, that is we'll our, official, our official ACBO convention door prize princess. So, <laughs> <laughs> her all day Hello, <laughs> Great <laughs> Michael job. Raised his
0: hand. <laughs> what? Michael has raised his hand. Hi, Michael.
2: Go ahead. I didn't realize I raised my hand. That's good to know. (laughs) Anyway, Mallory told me to say thank you, Abby, for calling our number because, you know, I didn't win anything. She won something.
4: Right. <laughs> I, we, I told Abby. Abby goes, "What number are we?" I'm like, "I don't know. I never find out what number we are. So we're just as surprised when she calls our number." <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks so much, and we'll do more door price tomorrow.
0: And we'll go ahead and turn it over to to Pat Schwab and learn a little bit about ACB of Oregon history.
2: Okay, I'm going to make this this one uh, a little bit shorter, but I'll pick it up tomorrow. Uh, Let's see, I'm drawing on the work of Fred Krepola, who wrote uh, First 21 Years, 1954 through 1974, from Mildred Gibbons, uh, Blindness in Oregon, 1994, and a host of stylist newsletters dating back to 1954. The first newsletter, uh, number one, volume one, was dated July 1954, and it was titled Bulletin. The, in the this uh, opening col uh, co- in his opening column in the first bulletin, Fred Krepula, uh was uh, designated as chair of publicity and publications. And I, I told you this yesterday. His quote the, that he he wrote quote Remember this is 1954 quote your, your chairman likes this job and uh, with such four good-looking girl, girls to assist him. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the organization was incorpor- incorporated in, in Oregon uh, in January of ni- 1954. The na- name used to incorporate the organization was the Oregon Associated Council of the Blind of Oregon. The organization Uh, has had different affiliations and names over the years. In 1954, the organization was called the Oregon Associated Council of the Blind, okay? And the word associated was dropped in 1956 uh, from the organization's name because it conflicted with another organization. George Horweiler was elected the first state president of OCB of Oregon. Uh, Mr. Hoewyler was an attorney in Sandy, Oregon, and recently blinded at the time. The OCB joined the National Federation of the Blind in 1955 so that Oregon would be part of the national organization. The NFB uh, had been around since 1940, Uh, just Curious. Does it? Is anyone surprised that uh, that ACB of Oregon started out as an affiliate of the federation? Really, you know, it's kind of kind of, kind of interesting. In 1961, NFB gave the Oregon Council for the Blind an ultimatum, compelling George Horweiler, uh to expel uh, George Horweiler from the organization or be thrown out of the NFB. They also demanded that uh, OCB subscribe and abide by all affiliate standards and uh, have representatives at all um, NFB conventions uh, and promise not to criticize the NFB officers or policies. In October 1961, the Oregon Council for the Blind vo- voted unanimously to disaffiliate uh, themselves from the NFB. For four years, uh, OCB was was again an independent council council of the blind. At our October 18th 1964 convention in Portland, uh, we voted to affiliate with the American Council of the Blind. We didn't cha- change change uh, our official name from Oregon Council for the Blind to the American Council for the Blind of Oregon until, until the year 2000. In July 1972, the uh, ACB of Oregon hosted the American Council for the Blind's National Convention at the Portland Hilton Hotel. That, that was just a few months, that's just a few months short, short of 50 years ago. I participated in the event. I I thought it was cool as a college student. Uh, Greg Greg Robinson, ACB of Oregon's president, gave the uh, uh, convention welcoming address. uh, We even hosted a bus trip for interested uh, convention participants to Oral Hall Park for uh, a twenty-year-old college stu- student, student uh, learning to be a teacher of the visually impaired. This was an exciting event. Okay, there's more to come. Come tomorrow. That I'm gonna gonna call call it uh, sh- uh, short right there, and so that, uh, that we can get, get into the uh, uh, after uh, after party.
0: You're ready to part. Wait, you've been drinking wine. You are partying. Never mind.
2: <laughs> hey.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Is that okay, You're Carrie? Awesome. awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> <Wine>. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah. Just yeah. Re- remember that you know when I, when I kind of have some details there that that they might be part of the test.
4: Ooh.
0: yeah Ooh. well mm-hmm. yeah that's and why see, people of have course to pay attention I schedule to get details late when my brain's already turned off so i, I <laughs> hear that i hear that
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, but the way that i fi- figure it was only uh uh 22 participants uh uh logged in now that uh, that i figure well, that uh, that there's yeah, a, been a whole bunch of people that missed that 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 uh, that's yeah I remember
0: minutes. we're being broadcast on radio too as well, well. so yeah, there's yeah. like more people out there yeah. that are li- we I never know. Know
4: who's listening in on us i know that's there right. are
0: more i know of a few that are listening via right video, so
4: hi hi Elle. we love you <laughs> <laughs> well a couple other people than just tile
0: i've gotten wind so yeah yeah
4: well yeah i know we i have heard that we have a next gen clubhouse room open that's streaming the acb media through the clubhouse so that's wow cool. yep. nice. uh, this is true
0: <laughs> so and, and uh for those who you know heard pat there so hi steven I,
4: <laughs> <laughs> and Courtney. <laughs> and Dika. i Actually, Vika said she was on ACB Media, so I don't know. And she, was, So she got. She hasn't got her guinea bag yet, but she can win a door prize. And so can Stephen. And Courtney. Yeah. So, so in yeah. other words, Pat, there's more people listening in than just <laughs> the 22 you see
0: in the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and well, so w- well, we're going to go. Oh, go ahead, oh, Jean Marie. Yeah it's so easy it's so easy to say american council for the blind and i know pat means of the blind, just so that everyone in radio land knows he knows the difference um, i
2: do know the difference i'm sorry
0: that's okay i i just wanted to cover for you because of the blind is what sets us apart from the commission which is ocb for the blind
2: <laughs> yes absolutely and I did work there for several years.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, we're going to move this. Uh, we've got an after-hours party. In ACB of Oregon's um, Zoom room is going to be open shortly. If somebody hasn't already opened
4: it, it will be open shortly. I will open it uh, oh, awesome. tonight. Oh,
1: awesome. Sounds great.
4: Sounds so, that great, way there's Diane. no confusion kind of on who's going to gonna... open it. <laughs>
0: there we go. That's a wise idea. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, we'll, Karen, how do we get there? Uh, huh? How do we get there? Where's the link to it?
0: Uh, you, oh, know, you know, what? it was sent out in the email, you want to send it to you, Hobie? That'd be great. Okay, I'll send it uh-huh. to you in just a minute. Um, okay, so much. Yeah awesome cool yeah so you can go there and uh you know party for a while and oh if you had questions about the goodie bag make sure to oh, check yeah. in there with cassie yep, yep. and and we will be back in this webinar to and on acb media oh, tomorrow morning at 9 a.m so oh, thank you rude. everybody <laughs> AM, no, that's not early, that's like noon,
4: you know. No, your 3 a.m. is early, uh, I'm complaining huh, about the 9 a.m. Huh, huh. <laughs> crazy. So, person. All
0: right, <laughs> we'll see you all over there. Have a great evening.